the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. Shipping's corporate veil is being pierced by ever more stringent financial and regulatory compliance requirements. Avoiding sanctions requires increasingly forensic due diligence across the supply chain to ensure that security red flags are not raised by international governments and agencies that now monitor every aspect of shipping's trade links. We're talking just a few hours after British Marines boarded a ship just off Gibraltar, apparently carrying Iranian crude destined for Syria, giving us the first grand slam of sanctions busting we've heard in a long time. I'm here with a crack squad of Lloyd's List and Lloyd's List intelligence experts to discuss not just how shipping deals with the grey areas of sanctions, but how we deal with the grey area of data transparency and integrity generally. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by our sanctions hound, Michelle Vizi Bachman, who's been chasing the Gibraltar angle through, uh, over the last few days. Thank you, Richard. Anastasios Adamopoulos, our, our, our regulatory expert and uh, increasingly now our, our data expert as well, as we uh, look into the European CO2 emissions data. And um, some newcomers to the uh, podcast are Lloyd's List Intelligence Analyst, Sebastian Villain and uh, Rosie Boyle. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you very much, Richard. Michelle, let's start with you, because this is the big news of the day. Likely by the time this podcast goes to air, the story will have moved on. But, you know, we've got a, a yet another tanker that's been identified by us first as carrying sanctioned Iranian crude, apparently destined for Syria, we think. So says the Gibraltar government. Just give us a quick overview in terms of what's happened and what we actually know. Well, what do we know? Well, using Lloyd's List intelligence data, we've been able to track this ship since the beginning of April, when it was seen using the same pattern of behaviour that many other very large crew carriers have used in terms of turning its um, AIS transponders, which transmit its location and depth in the water, it mysteriously vanishes as it heads into Iranian waters and then re-emerges any time between 10 or 10 weeks later, all of a sudden laden. In the case of uh, the Grace One, she was in Iranian waters, had spent protracted periods at anchor in various areas um, off the UAE and Iran, sailed around the Cape of Good Hope, signaled Gibraltar as its next destination. And I think three days after we broke the story, we have Royal Marines intercepting, seizing the vessel. It's now in the waters off Gibraltar. And I believe there's going to be some serious legal argument over the next 72 hours to keep the vessel detained. It's been arrested for allegedly violating Syrian, EU Syrian sanctions, not necessarily US Iranian sanctions. And that's also interesting because even though we've seen a lot of sanction busting um, on the Iran, Iran to China flows, and we've also seen Iran Syria crude heading uh, via the Suez Canal, we haven't actually seen any of the sort of dramatic interception and action that we, we've seen today. It's fair to say, I mean, this is all over the international press and we're being cited all over the place, but this is probably the first really high profile uh, event. But this is a pattern of behaviour that we've been tracking for quite some time. I'm going to bring the uh, the LLI guys in here because, I mean, it's important that we, we set out our terms here. What we do as a business, of course, is, is is track the world fleet. And what you guys are analyzing is what we call the AIS signals. Just give us a brief overview, Rosie, in terms of what that means and how we are tracking these vessels and how we can be so sure that this is a pattern of behavior worth looking at. 
Obviously, as mandated by the IMO, most vessels should have their AIS transponders switched on. There's particular mm-hmm. types of data points that are transmitted from the AIS um, transponder from a vessel, namely being the MSI, name, flag, draft, and the vessel status, so whether it's stopped, overground, and also the speed. Importantly, what's a good indicator really is around what's actually manually entered in by the ship's crew versus what's actually um, automatic. So the MSI name, flag and draft are all manually entered in, which ultimately means they can manually be tampered with. From a sort of understanding whether or not a vessel um, may have turned its AIS off or not, it's quite hard to tell. However, when you overlay and have an understanding of your own AIS coverage, it's a good understanding to say that if a vessel has traded through an area where you know you've got a terrestrial station and then yet we didn't pick it up, Mm. The idea would be we should have done, so it must have turned it off. And this is important because when we're talking about ships going dark, that's the sort of the common term that people use, we're talking about AIS signals no longer being received rather than us having categorical proof that somebody has, with yeah, intent, exactly. turned that system off. Yeah. What we're talking about here is overlaying the signal with a pattern of behavior, our intelligence and our ability yeah. to know that realistically we should be receiving a signal in that area either through land-based or satellite signals. Exactly, yes. Right, okay. Because this is important. What we are doing here is analyzing raw data and adding a a layer of uh, market intelligence and we are making some conjectures. So we cannot be 100% clear on all of this. I mean, in the case of the Grace One, we are making the assumption that it was carrying Iranian crude, Michelle, because it had followed a pattern of behavior that we had seen elsewhere. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. we get a lot of data, but the data always tells the story and you need somebody that understands what it all means. And and here, you know, you not only had the transponder being turned off, but, you know, you were able to look at the, the ownership pattern and also class and insurance of the vessel, which had been withdrawn in early January, just as the vessel was tracked at anchor in waters off Iran. So when you sort of put that all together and then you look at its pattern of behaviour alongside the other vessels that we've identified and located. I mean, no, we don't know for sure. The only people that do know, the crew and and the people with the bill of lading. But, you know, we can assert fairly confidently that's what's on board the vessel. Sebastian, I mean, you you do a lot of this, but from a slightly different angle. You're looking at the credit worthiness of companies, and that requires some fairly forensic digging in terms of, uh, you know, how these company structures are made. And you know, one of the things that Michelle and I have been chasing over the last, you know, couple of months, I guess, mm. really is the speed at which uh, companies are engaging in what we have politely termed deceptive behaviour. Give us a little flavour of the um, the complexities and the opaque nature of, of shipping's grey area as you deal with it on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, ship owners are deliberately opaque in their involvement and investment in vessels. And this is why the registered owners of these ships will usually be tend to be single ship owning uh, companies. And there's many reasons for this. One is shielding themselves from very complex risk and liability frameworks, but it's also a convenient way for some ship owners to also organize their fleets. So look at the detailed earnings per individual vessels and as a single account. So it's not always trying to avoid detection, but in the cases where they are, This is where we try and support the trade finance insurance sector by really unraveling what these complex ownership structures are and build a picture that can be drawn on. 
And as I said, these are the complexities we're trying to, to elaborate. We're looking at what is reported in the financial accounts, where are the ownership structures around this, who are the ultimate principles behind this shipping industry, uh, or be behind these vessels as well. And that's what we're trying to unravel. Because mm. one of the patterns, Michelle, that you've been charting, uh, particularly in the case of Iranian cargoes you know, engaging in this deceptive behavior, should we say, is the way in which beneficially owned companies that are registered that we don't really know too much about are, at the point that we are writing about them, very swiftly changing flags or being politely asked to change flags by uh, you know the uh, the authorities involved. We've had a couple of instances where Kunlun Shipping is yes. uh, a, a repeat offender on, yes. on the Lloyd's List news desk. This is a, a Chinese company that we haven't yet been able to penetrate uh, fully, but we know it's registered in China. We know it was engaged in uh, the transport of Iranian crude and latterly LPG. Correct. Um, and when we try and ask a few questions about it, we uh, find that it's registered to Liberia. Liberia swiftly deregisters. Yes. And then what happens? Well, then it turns up called the Latin Venture. And this is the case of one vessel had a new name, new flag, new everything. It just it, it uh, registered online in Panama. Yes, provisionally yeah. registered online. That again is is another nature of um, the international shipping industry and in that you have what you know politely called a flags of convenience. And there's open little, registers, open registers, open you. registers. I'm so sorry. So um, open registers, which allow very little scrutiny because, you know, Panama, world's largest open registry, you know, really lacks the capacity for every ship that that fills in the form online and wants to become, you know, wants Panama to become its flag state, that they, they don't check that. Mm. And well, so you can let flag me just shop. clarify that mm. uh, for the lawyers listening and uh, the Panamanian government when they call us. We have asked for the Panama authorities to give us some clarity over what exactly they checked, but oh, uh, yes. as yet we haven't had any response. Um, but this is... Well, we've you know, asked several times. Well, absolutely. Yep. Uh, to be fair to the Panamanians, they have just gone through a regime change over there That's at the, true. Uh, Panama. So uh, presumably... If you are listening, do get in touch. We are um, uh, I'm just here. waiting to hear. Yes. Um, but this is, the, you know, we're going back to this pattern of behavior. I mean, I remember, you know, over five, six, seven years ago, writing stories where the last round of Iranian sanctions saw cunning wheeze where the Iranians started creating offshore companies uh, in the Isle of Man and naming them after innocuous sounding Surrey towns, including my hometown of Farnham. Shout out to those people from Surrey. And also, um, um, they flagged in the very, very well-known um, register of Tanzania, Zanzibar. Ah, yes. How could you forget? Well, yes. It would appear that the Tanzanian government forgot because it turned out that the Tanzanian government didn't actually get involved in the registration of that flag and then it yes. was shut down by the IMO. So, yes. Again, we're going back into the grey area of uh, shipping. I, you know, We're saying this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but mm. this is the reality of, of mm. a, a persistent gray area that is a minority but it is a persistent gray area Anas, I, I want to bring you in here because it's a related story i think but um, not not directly related to sanctions you've been covering the the release of mrv data this is monitoring reporting and verification from the european union assessing how much co2 uh, european ships are, are emitting is that right yeah so it, the mrv basically consists of data on fuel consumption and emissions for ships that used EU ports last year. And this new database now is around 11,000 ships and has a series of, of parameters uh, around fuel consumption and uh, data emissions. And the, this was a long-awaited database as kind of the sort of the first up-to-date report on emissions from shipping with, and it, and it was always controversial because the ships are named. 
so you could, if you do enough research, you can find out which companies emit what. And also with fuel consumption, there are some commercial factors in there too to think about uh, and figure out their, their patterns there. But it it's definitely wasn't a smooth rollout because we found out following the uh, suggestion from a reader that um, the original data that was published was off by around 18 million tons or 12% because the data attributed around 18 million tons to, of CO2 to three ferries, mm. three row packs vessels, which obviously sounds uh, almost impossible. But the point is that no one caught that by the time the, the report was published. So the, the numbers were way off. And eventually the commission revised that and, and slashed that off. But it, you know, it raised questions about the validity of the data in there, the accuracy of the numbers, the job the verifiers have done, and ultimately how credible this, you know, this data is going to be going forward. So this, you know, we've, we've moved from talking about the gray area shipping, uh, you know, and transparency to the other end. You know, this is the EU pushing the boundaries of transparency within shipping, trying to get an accurate reflection of what is coming out of the ships. And these are the good people doing the good things. Um, this should have been the other end of the spectrum. But actually, the issue of data transparency, data integrity and accuracy is still a major issue. And this is kind of the, uh, you know, the somewhat ham-fisted segue I'm trying to make here. Yeah. Data and transparency are increasingly important in all parts of shipping. And getting it wrong has implications at every stage. The EU's MRV is Arguably, it's a, it's a clerical error and they will, you know, verify where they've got things wrong and go back and, and, and fix it. So why are we complaining about that? Well, we're complaining about that because it is important. Legislative decisions will be based on the outcome of these data collection programs. And the fact that they can be nearly 19 million tons off and it takes a lawyer's list reporter to point that out worries me. It worries me a great deal because this is going to determine how the industry uh, decarbonizes, is going to account for how carbon is priced into the supply chain. And if we don't get this right, if we don't verify data accurately, there will be problems across the industry. Yeah. And, and I think for those who don't know, some background is that, you know, th this is the EU's tool, but the IMO has its own uh, data collection system as well mm. that's being run right now. So I think a lot of people feel comfortable that a lot of the regulatory decisions will be made based on the IMO data and some studies that will come forward. But I think people forget that the EU will reconsider regional rules for emissions in 2023. Mm. And this will definitely be a key component for the regulations that come if any regulations come out of that. That's yeah. going to be their main sort of source of proof numbers. So, you know, if the numbers there are not accurate, it's like you said, the regulations could be flawed. Mm. Uh, there could be financial implications with carbon price. Like it, it's not, it, it's a tedious issue, but it's um, it's definitely very it's an important. important one. And it's also, it's not just a question of the EU. The EU is the first set of data that we've seen, but yeah. we're awaiting the outcome of the IMO, mm -hmm. the DCS, mm -hmm. Data mm -hmm. Collection System. You know, where again we are reliant on government transparency, uh, verifying data, no vested interest coming into play. We are reliant on data, and we need to question that data at every stage. You know, arguably, you know, I uh, talk from a, a vested interest myself, having uh, two colleagues sitting to the right of me who are, you know, there, you know, with the express intention of, of, of being uh, data analysts and, and verifying data within the industry. But the whole point of why we do that and why your roles are in demand right now is precisely because of this. And I think I would argue that actually 
rather than getting uh, bogged down in terms of the politics of data, mm. what the industry needs to do now is to engage with people like us and other third party verifiers and really look at this, as you say, quite tedious, but very detailed and very important aspect of data integrity and verification. That's my, uh, my, my commercial plug over. But um, what do we think in terms of next steps? We, we're talking here on the 4th of uh, July. It's uh, nearly 4 o'clock. I think we're going to be going out by Friday morning on the 5th of July. Michelle, any, uh, any predictions for next week's podcast in terms of where we're going to be? You know, you've, had, uh, you, you've managed to get a, the grand slam of sanctions this week. What's, uh, what else are we looking at at the moment? Well, there, there's now some talk. I think Spain, which as we all know, um, doesn't recognise British sovereignty over Gibraltar, has been saying that the arrest was done at the behest of the US. So, you know, we may even get a, a Donald Trump tweet. Oh. I mean, what? <laughs> the end of a perfect The ultimate. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we will wrap the podcast up there for this week. Guys, thank you very much for joining me. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you very much. And we will uh, be back to you next week on Friday. Thanks very much.